Today, let's see the skeleton, not in the closet, but in the living room. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So uh, today's episode's a little different. I don't do a lot of self-help advice. Uh, This falls into that category. Hopefully it's a little broader than that as well. Uh, But in the end, I think this is something that could help us just see things more clearly. On the way to it, and something relevant to the conversation we'll be having today, uh, I do want to mention this. We we did some episodes not too long ago. Uh, This is, by the way, I think episode 59 uh, that we're on now. So, you know, we've been going at this for a good while, more than a year, and I uh, have a lot of episodes in the can. I encourage you to go back and listen to some uh, if you've missed some of them. Uh, we did we did some episodes about 10 or 12 episodes ago, 46, 47, 48, those episodes, three episodes in a row on the, que- uh, the question of life on earth after Roe. Uh, can there be life on earth pro- post-Roe? Uh, you know, the intent to use the the language of life ambiguously, but to make the point of where this goes for those of us who are advocating for life in the womb, what it actually means, where people presume, oh, now we're just, uh, life is safe in the womb. Uh, We have a long conversation about why that's not inherently the case. And you can see that now in the way things have actually played out. We started having that conversation just before Roe was struck down, by the way. So it's been uh, I th- I hope if you were to go back and listen to it, you would see, uh, you would recognize just how uh, accurate the descriptions we gave were because it, it was fixed. I mean, it was it was bound to happen. It wasn't unpredictable. And it's the kinds of structures that allow you to see that that I want to talk about today. Well, on the issue of life itself, I do want to mention an event coming up. We have uh, somebody we had a relationship with for a long time while we were on the radio and uh, that, w- that we've been big fans of, and they've been encouragements to protect the value of life and to do it respectfully, uh, uh, are the people at Texans for Life. So this is Kyleen Wright's organization. Uh, and it, with the overthrow of Roe v. Wade and all, there's still, there's still a lot of work to do and a lot to support in these organizations like hers, uh, like Texans for Life, that I want to encourage you to be a part of. And so uh, they have a dinner coming up, and I just want to mention it real quickly, and then I'll move on. But they have a dinner coming up on September 17th uh, with former NFL safety and evangelist Jack Brewer. So he went to high school, I think, in Grapevine, by the way. So he's a local athlete. Uh, who made good, set all kinds of records and all that kind of stuff. So good guy. Uh, Encourage you to go and hear him at the Texans for Life dinner, their coalition dinner, annual benefit dinner, which is September 17th. It's at the West NDFW Airport and so on. We'll have a link 
uh, on our website that you can go to if you want to go look it up, but you can also just go to textlife.org and you'll find it. So that's for the Texans for Life organization with Kylene Wright. Uh, we are grateful for them, and I hope you get a chance to support them as you have the opportunity. So uh, the self-help, advi- self-help advice that I want to get back to now and the conversation we need to have. And really what I'm doing here is just sharing something I've learned from so many other people. Uh, and it's been transformative to the way I do almost everything. Uh, and it's uh, it's built into the way, I don't know, something in the way I'm designed to think uh, makes me think this way. So I favor it, obviously. I encourage you to at least give it a try or, or some consideration as we talk through it. So being 59 episodes in, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, in... Uh, you know, this is an episode uh, to to bring this stuff up that I've learned from a variety of sources and then give you an opportunity to decide whether it will be useful for you or not. So uh, there were a lot of things that happened that made me aware that that this was what was going on in my mind, that this is the way I was thinking about things. Or uh, there were other things that were happening that sort of said to me, hey, wake up, there's something else going on here, pay attention to it. Uh, and and it came from a lot of different perspectives. So I'll, I'll sort of work my way backwards if you give me a, a moment to do this. So a few years ago, I actually had an Android phone instead of an iPhone. Major mistake. No, no, not really. Android phones are fine for those of you who, who like them, whatever. But I have gone back to the dark side, which is actually the much easier side to use uh, with iPhones. But when I had my Android phone, I had Google turned on. Uh, Android is the Google you know, phone. So I had Google, whatever, turned on. And uh, I didn't know, I I mean, I didn't know what all that meant. And I got in my car one day on a Wednesday morning or something to go to some place that I didn't go very often, but every once in a while I had to go there. And my phone popped up and said, 10 minutes to whatever this place that I was going to go to and gave me directions on how to get there without me asking. And I thought, what? is going on. Now, aside from the privacy questions and all that kind of stuff, which I got over really quickly because it was so stinking convenient. So it's like, I don't care if I have privacy or not. This thing will tell me where I need to get. It's fantastic. Uh, anyway, we can have that conversation another day. What well, you know, getting past all of that, what it really made me, what, what it made me understand was how predictable my behaviors were. I didn't even anticipate where I was going to be going that day, and my phone could anticipate where I was going to be going, which told me there was a lot less going on in my mind than was going on in my behaviors, which is an embarrassing admission to make for somebody who makes a living off of their mind, basically. So, But it's the truth. This is how we live our lives. And all of you have, I'm sure, had that experience by now where your phone pops up and tells you, well, it's 13 minutes to the location you're going, which you didn't realize you were going to, but I did, so I thought I would inform you about where you're going. Now go there. Uh, that's an uh, interesting experience, but it does reveal how structured our lives actually are. We only go to so many places. We only look at so many websites. We only watch so many television shows. We only eat so many kinds of meals or go to so many restaurants, and we create a structure in our lives that those uh, that 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 fit all of those things in. And then we are just basically this geometric shape that fills a void uh, in existence. Now, I'm not saying that as a true skeptic or something like that. I'm just saying it's interesting how predictable our behaviors are, that a phone can figure it out. And you say, well, it's a really smart phone. Eh. Have you talked to your phone very much? It's not that smart. And yet it can figure out what we're doing. 
It's like talking to Alexa. If you train yourself to say just the right words, the speaker seems really smart. But in truth, we're just very predictable people, sort of like a Hallmark movie ending. Uh, I have, I won't say who, a person that I know very well who watches Hallmark movies every once in a while, and I'm not going to be specific about who it is. doesn't matter who it is. But I will sometimes jokingly say to that random person, uh, you know, uh, when I'm passing by and I see that there's a Hallmark movie on, it's like, oh, oh, but do you think he's going to come back for her or or are her dreams dashed forever? And And it's, I mean... It's so because the structure of the movies is exactly the same every single time. And that doesn't mean it's not important. It's fine. The, the fact that it happened with Bob and Mary this time instead of happening with John and Susie is important. But it is exactly the same thing that happens over and over and over again, which is what makes them so appealing and lovely. I'm so glad people enjoy those movies. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, but then there are there is a specific kind. So these these are things that I was observing over time that made me go that made me say to myself, "Wow, you know, things don't have to be completely distinctive every time. They're not brand new every time. A lot of times it's it's the same structure that's present, even if the water flowing through the structure is new." The structure itself is the same, and studying the structure can reveal a lot. And there's a particular kind of structure or a system, and, and in this case, that particular kind of structure is a system, uh, that I have found really helpful or insightful over my years of ministry. Before I was focused entirely on higher ed plus ministry, I was in ministry. You know, I pastored a church for 17 years and so on. Now I'm at Criswell College. I love being here. But while I was in ministry, I learned... Uh, how to see family systems and how families related to each other and those family systems amount to these structures that keep us behaving a certain way. I had a professor, I think his name was Mike McGuire, uh, who taught a counseling class here at Criswell College when I got my MDiv here back in the 90s. Uh, and he gave us a book on genograms. And so we did these things, I don't know what they, I don't know what people would call them now, but it's sort of a, and an, they still call them genograms, my counseling master's uh, over here uh, as a producer is telling me that's what they're called now. But so I did a genogram, which is sort of a diagram of your family history, uh, something like that. And so I did a genogram. It was an assignment in the class. And then I uh, had my wife, uh, who was a fiance at the time, I believe. No, she was my wife at the time. Uh, she did her genogram for her family. And we didn't even think about this, didn't even realize it. But on both, and I'll give you the simple form of it. This went layers and layers deep in how parallel they were. But both of our mother's families had a bunch of sisters and a baby brother, and the, the whole nature of the family was structured exactly the same, even the way the individuals related to each other and the way our moms fitted into their families were exactly parallel. We had no idea that was the case. It just happened invisibly because there are these structures and systems within families that produce things in us that we don't even realize are happening. And I like being aware of what's happening. It, it, it makes us uh, not just more informed so we can talk about it, but it makes us smarter participants in the world that's around us. And because we're supposed to study, because we're supposed to know the truth, because we're supposed to understand, we're not unintelligent animals who are participating in the system. We're, we're rational animals, to use Aristotle's term for it then it's nice to have a rational grasp on some of the things that are most influential 
in the ways we behave from day to day. And so I, I loved getting a grasp that there are structures that sort of govern a lot of our lives and that there are systems that make up a lot of those structures. And things like this could be as innocuous as, like the, like the first time I was at an event, and I've been, a, I've been a Baptist my entire life, grew up Baptist, saved as a Baptist, committed as a Baptist now, I'm still, I'm still Baptist. That doesn't mean I'm proud of every Baptist, including myself, but I am still Baptist. So the first time I went to some, I think it was a Lutheran event that I went to, and, and then subsequently I could name quite a few other denominations where I've been involved in an event, whether it was because of a wedding or a funeral or a special service they were having or some community event or whatever. But the first time I was at an event that was predominantly Lutheran, I think it was Lutheran in this case, hearing someone in that setting say to their congregation, well, you know, we're Lutherans, so you know there's going to be food involved. It was really weird. It was like, wait, that's our line. That's that's the, ba- I wanted to stand up and go, that's what Baptists say. That's not what Lutherans say. And then in every event I've been at subsequently, I realize everybody says that about their denominations. And it's the same thing when I go and stay in a hotel room somewhere where I'm going to preach or speak somewhere in some, in, in some other region of the country. And I hear the weatherman say, you don't like the weather? Just give it five minutes and it'll change. Only in, you know, wherever they are, the Midwest, only in, you know, wherever. They, everybody says that. We always say that about Texas. I want to stand up and go, no, no, that's not true here. That's true in Texas. What are you talking about? But we follow these patterns that are just so fixed that if we could recognize them, they would equip us uh, to get a better grasp on how we're living our lives and why we're living our lives and what we do to change the things we're doing in our lives where they need to change. And so the way I, and this is, uh, this is me, I mean, this is, uh, I'm not telling you you have to be this way, it just it helps me a lot. The way I engage in conversations, the way I read a piece of literature, including scripture, the way I prepare sermons or a speech, the way I resolve conflicts or counsel people, the way I try to improve myself is this way, by backing away from the immediate issues that people are thinking are governing this moment and seeing instead the the structure or the system behind it. And I'm so-so at it. I'm not great at it. It's just, but the tool is so valuable that even if you're mediocre at it, 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 it makes you feel like you're flying for the first time in a jet instead of trying to crawl over each blade of grass while you're addressing something. It's a, it's a, it's a world changing uh, encounter to just to grasp these concepts. So hopefully you've grasped them thoroughly and maybe these will just be a few examples uh, in areas that you had or hadn't thought of. And in, in, in one sense, I do want to say, this isn't purely extra biblical. I mean, as I read scripture, I see case after case where the people I want to be like in scripture or the people who grasp the world the most clearly do live in this understanding, or they at least practice what this understanding helps me to practice as well. So, for instance, in grasping the world, who has a better grasp in terms of a wise understanding of the world under the sun than, you know, the preacher, uh, Solomon, uh, in Ecclesiastes. And in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, what what he describes in this constant cycle, this repetition of things is a structure that's practically inescapable. 
a, a generation goes and a generation comes. I mean, each generation is its own thing, right? It is. And each generation is equally important. Of course they are. But the earth remains forever. This structure is just present behind it. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. So it's a cyclical structure. It's going over and over. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns again. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man can't utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. Those statements are about the structures underlying the world in which we live. And this is Solomon, you know, slapping us in the head and saying, hey, wake up. You're not the first person to be in this rodeo. If you'll just listen, I'll give you some advice. And even though you think your issues are all different because it's this group of attackers instead of that group of attackers, you'll realize that it's the same world and the same experiences and the same God, by the way. Uh, by the time you get to the end of the book. And so we can learn some things by seeing the structures. Uh, you know, another one that I'll mention, I, I just want to give one more example to say in the way we understand Scripture, seeing that this is what's going on with someone can be helpful. So, for instance, where the prophets enter a discussion and act as a prophet is very much in this space where you're a part of recognizing and dealing with the underlying structural problem or systemic problem, not just addressing the issue that someone's throwing in front of you. Perfect example is Micaiah coming before Ahab and Jehoshaphat when they want to go into battle. Remember the king of Israel, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, uh, there's someone, there's still someone else we can inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. So Ahab knows. So this is a new request he's going to make, but Ahab already knows there's going to be a problem because there is a more structural difference between Micaiah and his revelations and my kingdom, my kingship, right? So he said, I don't want to call Micaiah, but I guess if you want him, he always, he always just prophesies evil for me. So I know that's what's going to come, but he's still going to try it. Okay, so Micaiah comes and he says, as the Lord lives, and they send off for him and he comes. And he says, as the Lord lives, and by the way, this is in 1 Kings 22, if you want to go read it sometime. As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that's what I will speak. And this is in response to people who are saying to him, hey, the king's already expecting a bad prophecy from you. Come on, just give him good news. All the other prophets have prophesied. Just let him hear the good news that he can go to the battle, we can win and go, just don't make a big deal of it. He says, ah, what the Lord tells me to speak, that's what I'm going to speak. And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, should we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle? Or should we refrain? And he said to him, go up, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. That There could be truth to this. Ramoth Gilead is under conflict, and what comes out of this, of course, is that Ahab's dead. But that doesn't mean they don't win the battle or that they don't end up with Ramoth Gilead in the end. So, I mean, there could be truth to it. But I, I don't want to equivocate here. He's not saying that because it might come to pass. He's saying it because it do, he knows it doesn't make a hill of beans difference whether the man goes to Ramoth Gilead or not in the battle. The battle isn't the issue. That's just what Ahab thinks the issue is. 
The problem is that Ahab is king. That's what he wants to deal with. The, the problem in Israel is that they have evil rulers. That's what Micaiah wants to deal with. And so when, so when he says, should we go up to battle or not? And he says, oh, yeah, go ahead, go and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. He's, not, he's, he's basically saying, yeah, you, yeah I'll, I'll tell you what you want to hear, because what you want to hear isn't what's important. What's important is that you're an evil king, and God needs to get rid of you. That's what he's about to say. So the king says to him, oh, come on, don't give me that. I know you're not, I know that's not what you're thinking. How many times do I have to tell you? Tell me the truth in the name of the Lord. And he said, okay, I'll tell you the truth. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep having no shepherd. That is, I saw your people without a king. How does that make you feel, king? And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to their home in peace. So yeah, go to the battle, and then you'll die, and then Israel will have some peace. So yeah, I think it's a good thing if you go to the battle, O king. This is a prophet saying, I'm not just going to play the game with you or fit into solving this issue that you think is so important. The bigger problem here is that Israel has evil kings, including you, and that the Lord wants to take you out. So however you want to talk about it in terms of Ramoth Gilead, go ahead, talk about it. I don't care. But you want to hear what the Lord wants to say? He wants to say, if you're going to be this evil, you can't be king anymore, and that's what's going to happen. That ability to step back from the conversation being put in front of you and to have instead the conversation you know needs to be had about the bigger issue, that's where I wish all of us, especially as believers, could live. I mean, it's Jesus with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, you know, or the woman who's taken in adultery, either one. The, the other people, they all want to come to Jesus and say, oh, let's talk about sexual impurity and sin, and oh, let's talk about what's wrong with that other person. But Jesus speaks with them about what can go wrong with people who feel competent to judge others' sexual sins but they don't see the real meal that God has for them, or they don't see the hypocrisy of their own sins even, including, by the way, their religiosity. That's Jesus saying. It's not the issue that is in front of you is not the thing that needs to be addressed. There is a meta issue, a bigger issue that needs to be addressed and said. So, you know, seeing the structure behind the issues that we have a tendency to talk about can pull the blindfold from our eyes. Let's see, I've, I, I, this is, I have spent an inordinate amount of time on this podcast, not this episode, on this podcast, all of the episodes combined, just doing this, saying, you've heard that the issue is such and such, but in reality, there's a bigger problem that is the structure underlying that issue. And that's what we've tried to address. That's what I was doing with the, the uh, Life Pro uh, uh, Post Row uh, series that we did, saying, uh, fine, you can deal with the issue of Roe v. Wade, but that's not the underlying structure that's begun to exist. And not just the structure that there is abortion taking place, but the structure of the conflict over abortion that exists. That's what we were doing in that conversation. So paying attention only to the content of discussions or only to the issues in a debate, it's like trying to drive by staring at your windshield instead of the world beyond the windshield. And I'm trying to get us past the windshield, past the 
the smears and the blurs and to the world that's beyond us, the underlying reality where real change can take place and where it can remain, where it can endure. So, you know, this, this is the one way to put the difficulty of what I'm talking about or the significance of what I'm talking about is to ask, you know, is to figure out why improvement is such a challenge. And it is. Surely you recognize this in our own lives. Surely we recognize this. I mean, we make all kinds of changes and they just don't stay. How many people uh, lose weight and then gain it back, you know, over a period of time? How many people build muscle and then lose it over a period of time? Uh, it, and it happens all the time. How many families seek resolution to a conflict and finally it happens and oh, wonderful vacation. And then within a month, right back to the same old arguments that we were having before. What on earth is going on that improvement is that difficult to obtain? And the, the answer is fairly simple. I mean, it's, and, and metaphorically, it's really simple, but it's, it's not just metaphorical. I mean, uh, this, is, this is just the case. It's because scaffolds grow up around us to support exactly where we are right now. And you, you get the image of what I'm describing. So we are in a certain place right now. We act a certain way. We're around certain people. We have certain habits. We have a certain job and blah, blah, blah. And around us, there grow up these scaffolds of support that make it possible for us to be that. They have to because that's what we need because this is who we are right now. Well, all of those scaffolds are in a fixed position. They're set to keep us where we are. They're not enemies. They're just things that were supporting what we wanted to be in this moment. And they keep us there. And so when we're trying to solve a problem, and it doesn't matter what it is, if it's at work or at home or in the type of ministry that we're doing or, you know, in the organization we work with, or if it's in terms of serving populations that we haven't cared about before, we want to make a difference with them now. So have you ever noticed this, that what you do when you're trying to solve those problems, that the best work you do, the most creative answers you find are when you are far removed from that context, when you're not in it. So you're at work and it's become a malaise and you've sort of lost your traction and you, you're needing to make some changes and, you, you know, you, you think of ideas and you, you try them and nothing's working. And then you take a vacation and you give a day on your vacation to working on your, your problems at work and you try to find solutions. And, and all of a sudden it's just pouring out of you. Oh, well, I need to reorganize this and that. And, and here's the idea. And, I, and I'll write this and I'll meet with that person. I'll talk about that. and We'll create this structure and this procedure. And wow, problem solved. Amazing because you're outside the infrastructure, the scaffolding that had grown up around you in that workplace to keep it like it is. It's amazing how it can clear your mind to get a little distance, literally geographic distance sometimes. And it, it, and it is, again, because the context has built itself into the shape of your presence in that context while you're in it. It's like your shape in a beanbag chair, right? So the more con so you become conformed, you, I mean the beanbag chair becomes conformed to you, but you become conformed to it. And the more conformed that beanbag chair becomes to you and your present state, the more comfortable it is, by the way. So if you don't fit the context, you adjust until you do, or it adjusts until you do. So if you want to change the context, 
It means to adjust all the stuff that just adjusted to become the way you are right now. It's, it's almost impossible, it, with one exception, right at the beginning, which is why when somebody joins your workforce, for instance, you get a lot of insight from them that you can't get from the people who are a part of your workforce for a while. So a new person coming in, the fresh eyes, the ability to see things that everybody else was overlooking, that's tremendously valuable. And it's the same with us. When we're first doing something, we have all kinds of capital to make changes because you're sitting down in the bead chair and requiring it to reform to you. But once you're in it, you're just as fixed as everything else was in it. So, and it's not easy to reshape that beanbag chair while we're sitting in it, by the way. So in practice, you know, what does that mean? How does it, how does it turn into something for us? So seeing structures or systems so that we can understand them and appreciate them better also gives us an ability to make a difference in them. So on one side, it's, it's just an analytic tool. It's a way of grasping things that we just didn't notice before, which makes us better informed, and that's a better place to be. The truth sets you free, right? So it's like, and, and here's an example of, uh, of structural tools that are analytic tools. Learning syntax, uh, just grammar, you know, syntax. Learning logic, uh, the ability not just to hear an argument in its content, but to see the underlying structure of an argument and examine it. This is why I teach logic at Criswell College, which I'm doing right now, this semester. When you learn syntax or logic, then suddenly you're able to examine sentences with syntax. You're able to examine sentences better. Oh, I understand it. This was the verb. This was the noun. This was the subject. This was the object. Uh, this is the indirect object, you know, and so on. When you, when you understand syntax, then you get a better handle on what someone might be doing with a sentence. When you get a, a grasp of logic, then you have a better opportunity to examine what someone's doing with an argument because the structure underlying it is a fundamental part of what's going on. And, and by the way, if you think this is some artificial construct, this is exactly what Stephen does in his sermon in Acts 7. It is the point of his sermon in Acts 7 when he brings up Joseph and then Moses and then David and then Jesus, and then he himself becomes the illustration in the present day as people who all follow exactly the same structure. They are chosen by God. Think about each one of these, Joseph, chosen by God. Then they are rejected by the people God chose for them to deliver, Joseph being rejected by his brothers, right? But in the end, they become the means of God's deliverance of the people who rejected them. It's what happens to Joseph, Moses, who doesn't get to go into the land that the people get to go into, Jesus, obviously, who's crucified by the people he is redeeming, Stephen, who will be martyred right then and there at the end of this sermon, at the feet of Saul, whose life is saved by Stephen's martyrdom. It's a perfect example of exactly the same thing that's happened throughout Scripture everywhere in the Old Testament. And Stephen is saying to them, oh, you never noticed the underlying structure of these stories? Well, let me help you with it because you're about to replicate it. It'd be nice if they recognized it before they stoned him, but they're not going to. And we know that before he finishes the sermon because he's telling them, this is what's going to happen to me because it's what happens to all these guys. So think of it like 
and I mean, not that, not the sermon now, leave that behind for a second. But, uh, you know, when you think of it as an analytical tool like this, as an analytic tool like this, for us to be able to examine other things effectively, think of it like a plumber fixing a water flow problem in someone's drainage system. He's not going to study the water. Well, let's check the uh, chemical makeup of this water and decide why it's flowing the wrong way or clogging up. I mean, what's going on here? You, you, you study the pipes. Are they clogged? Are they flowing down? Are they, are they actually pointed downhill? Are they cracked? If, if we fix those things, then the water can flow. And so in the same way, when you're reading a text, you look at genre, you, look at, you learn to examine the beginning, middle, and end, and, and then the message of the text can flow. Or if you're resolving a conflict, are there patterns to this conflict in the past? Are there changes or tensions that go beyond the issue at hand? Oh, you're arguing about which car you're driving, but what else is going on in your life right now that would make this so important? Then when we understand the structure that's going on behind it, we can introduce something to dissolve the rigidity of the conflict, still deal with the issue, but having eliminated the pipe that was keeping us flowing the wrong direction, we can introduce something that might actually make a difference. So there are other ways to talk about this. In practice, seeing the structures is what we were just talking about. In practice, on the other side, understanding structures or systems is important so that we can introduce the kind of change that can endure, so that we can actually make a difference. So again, really simple examples that I've used many times. A, a parent recognizing when you have so, you know, normally we just know we're having an argument with a teenager. I don't have teenagers, so I can talk about this innocuously now. Thank heavens. A parent, you know, what we normally do is just know, oh, I'm having an argument with my teenager. How can we have this? How disrespectful can this teenager be? And so on, you know. But, but as a parent, and being the adult, you're the one who needs to figure this out. As a parent, recognizing when you have the same argument with your teenager every week, then something is going on other than just an argument about where socks are laying in the, lying in the house or what time they get in the car to go to school in the morning. There, there's something else going on or which foods they're eating or not eating. If you're having the same argument every week, there's something in the structure of your relationship that wants that argument to happen. And if you want to address it, then you need to back up and recognize, well, partially, by the way, on this one, partially to say, it does take two to tango. So anytime you would say to your teenager, why are you arguing with me about this? It's so unimportant. It does take two people to make it important enough to argue about. And you're one of the ones making it important enough to argue about. You're the one who can break the system, the structure, by introducing something different, doing something fundamentally different. You say, what? Well, for $50 an hour, I'll meet with you and we can talk about it. That's a joke. I'm not a licensed counselor. I have one in the room, but I'm not a licensed counselor. Uh, but I am saying to you as a pastor, you know, as a person who pastored for years and years and years, introducing change into a system like that is the only way to make a difference in whether those arguments happen or not, and then whether you actually make progress on the issues of the arguments or not. Same way, I would say to someone someone who, who feels, and this is this is simple and straightforward, Someone who feels listless or uh, lost or, or confused or hopeless, you know, what do you do? Well, so, the, I mean, obviously, we're telling people all of the time to turn to a supernatural deliverance, 
turn to God. We talk about Jesus Christ as a deliverer, someone who gives you a new life, a new birth, if you acknowledge that your life is messed up and that you need him to take over to be your Lord. He rose from the dead to do it. We say things like this all the time. It's sharing good news. There's hope for for that hopeless, lost, confused, listless life to turn to a supernatural deliverance and conversion. And what is that doing? It's introducing a complete disruption to the system of your life, which has been designed to keep us where we are. And a sociologist could do what they want with it. A sociologist could come in and say, well, you know what really made the difference in that person's life is that they became a member of a new community. Yeah, okay, I'm fine with that. I mean, it's sort of like the old, uh, the old line that people give. If you say, what do you mean you're okay about that? I thought you believed in the supernatural. Of course I do. It's sort of like the old line about whether it's a miracle or not that this thing happened. Here's the, here's the thing, that there's a child. This, this is an old example. I don't know who created it, so I'm not creating it. I'm just replicating it. I'm not replicating it. I'm just saying it again. So there's a little kid playing on a train track, and you can see there's a train coming around the corner that's about to kill the little child on the, cra- on the train track. It's terrible. Oh, what's going to happen? And then you utter a prayer, God, please stop the train. And at that moment, a toolbox falls off the shelf and hits the engineer, and the engineer accidentally bumps into the brake and knocks the brake forward, and, and the train comes to a sudden screeching stop two inches from where the child is. And you say, God saved this child from imminent death. And, you know, a naturalist says, no, a toolbox did. But, you know, I mean, I don't care how God did it. I'm still going to give God credit for doing it. The fact that God uses a new community and new relationships and people who surround someone and help disciple them and grow them to bring about these changes, I think is just a beautiful part of the picture of how holistically God brings redemption to people's lives. But the point is, it didn't take saying hey, you know, let's work on uh, trying not to drink that or eat that or take that or do that or be that, but instead said, you know, let's ask for someone to disrupt the whole system of our lives. Let's ask for someone supernatural to step in and change what is naturally bound by the system around us. Or, uh, you know, communities, and, and people don't like this topic all the time, but it's pretty simple, and I'm not staying on it very long, but I ought to. Communities. How do communities change? Communities in in which there are divisions that are visibly present. I mean, literally visibly present along racial lines. I, I recently, I went to church one Sunday morning celebrating this black pastor's anniversary and had a glorious time worshiping in his congregation. And, and I may have been the only white face in the congregation. I'm not sure but I, I probably was the only white face in the congregation. And again, I, I don't, if anybody from that congregation is listening, I don't mean anything negative by that. I'm just pointing out that was the case. And it was a glorious worship service. The very next week, and I told this congregation the next week about this, the very next week I went to a different congregation uh, in a white community, and they do a beautiful job of serving their community. They are engaged and conscious about their involvement in relieving suffering in their community and so on. And it was wonderful. And I w- and this, this uh, very faithful white pastor was out of the pulpit that week. I didn't get to meet him that week. But I, there was not a single face of color in the congregation that I noticed. Now, I may be wrong. There may have been some. And I'm not saying that critically of this congregation, that both churches were reflecting their geography. But that geography was reflect, is reflecting a long history of division, a long history of division. 
more than just spatial division, social division, economic division, legal division. So to talk about race, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's legally bound up for us right now. It is in some ways and it isn't in others. We'll have those conversations in other episodes. But to talk about race at a level which does anything more than just make sure, you know, like at a minimal level, no one utters a racial slur. Or I myself don't think negatively, at least actively, about people of a different race. To talk about race at a level which does anything more than just that, we have to look at systems, at structures which perpetuate historical imbalances in power and opportunity. And and however that conversation comes out, at least then we're talking about those scaffolds that have grown up around the way we're used to being and that are so likely to keep us there. So what's my point? Well, very simply put, it's this. To do more than just slap back at something that slaps us, to do more than just punch, in turn, someone who punched us, or even to do more than simply help, but only tit for tat, that is, if we want to do better than just resist evil, you know, which, it, which is literally exactly what Jesus tells us not simply to do. Resist not evil is the language Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he's telling them, don't just slap a person that slaps you. you know, don't just go a mile, go another mile, and so on. Turn the other cheek and all that. If we want to do more than just slapping back, then we need to see the path beyond the one that specific issues or debates have put us on. Issues, specific issues and specific discussions and specific debates, they do still matter to me. I'm not a structuralist in in the sense that no content means anything. We're all just living in an empty structure. I'm not saying that. Issues still matter to me. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe in the authority of Scripture, the the sufficiency of Christ's atonement to cover the sins of the whole world, the promises that God made to Israel. I believe in the great commandment and the great commission. On the other side, I am a pro-life, pro-immigrant, pro-women advocate for survivors and for ending systems perpetuating racial injustice. So, you know, so what, what path am I supposed to stay on that, I, that is prescribed for me by the people that are having those debates right now? Well, actually, they all point at me and say, get in one path or the other, but stop standing over there in the middle and holding a sign up that uh, puts you, you know, on one side, not, on neither side. Would you pick a side? No, I'm not going to. I want to be in a different path. And, and, and more importantly than, than just that fact, that there's a lot of conflict in our society right now and in our theology right now, beyond that is just this overall reality about human existence. And, and for any issue that matters to you, the actual issue itself, the topic itself, the content itself, for any issue itself that really matters to you to be the issue we actually address as we go about our lives, because remember, we started off the discussion today, I said we were going to do a little self-help today, so this is the very little self-help, right, that goes with it. For us actually to deal with the issues that we say matter to us, then we have to see the structures that are pulling us into conversations 
which may make us feel like we're on our issue, but in reality, they aren't about what we care about. They're just making us part of the system, part of the structure. We need to see that. By stepping back and seeing what's actually going on around us, we may be, and this is what I pray for all of us, in a better place to be faithful to what we do actually believe. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.